Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview a piano player and the wife of Mike Longo from the Ohio Valley, Dorothy Longo. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, we I should say I have the honor to have Miss Dorothy Longo on the show. Ma'am, thank you for joining us. It means a lot. It's my pleasure. I'm so happy to be here with you and your audience. Could you please tell the people a short summary about yourself and then we'll get into it? Oh, well, I'm uh, I'm the widow, even though I still call myself a wife of Mike Longo who was a jazz musician. Uh, he was Dizzy Gillespie's pianist and musical director for seven years from 1966 to 1973. And uh, he stayed very, very close with Dizzy until Dizzy's passing in uh, 1993. They had a very, a very, very close bond because they shared um, the dedication to the music. Mike thought, that Dizzy was basically a musical messenger. He thought he was more than a great entertainer and a great trumpet player, which he certainly was. But Mike thought he was actually a messenger, along with Charlie Parker, who initiated the first organic change in music since Bach. And uh, the reason I say that is because he's... uh, talking about incorporating the African rhythms into the European harmonic principles, which happened here in the United States, in America, and it could only have happened here uh, because of African-Americans being brought over from Africa as slaves, unfortunately. However, the result of that was a, a new art form, jazz, the blues, gospel, and ultimately, which Dizzy and Charlie Parker uh, initiated. And so Mike was really his disciple. He was his student and his disciple. And because Mike was, was considered white, Mike never considered himself that way, but it was clear that that's how society viewed him. And I say he never considered himself that way because he came from a uh, uh, he was third generation Italian, and his grandfather was from Sicily. So when his grandfather came over here, um, he was labeled through Ellis Island. He was labeled as an Afro Sicilian or Black Italian, and so as a result, Mike lived within the Black community, not just beside them, but within them ever since he was a baby. So he had the great advantage as a white person to experience the culture, the world of, of the African-Americans in the United States, which most white people did not. And so um, Mike's legacy is something that I am, I am very uh, determined to put out there because I want it to be available for today's musicians and today's, today's uh, the general the general populace, as well as for future future generations, because uh, 
the promotion of racial unity and the oneness of humankind was really Dizzy's and Mike's mission in life. And it was through their art form that they promoted this. So um, telling Mike's stories as a, quote, white guy, the only white guy in a black band during touring the world during the civil rights era, including the Deep South, um, I want to give a, that perspective to um, to people and especially to younger people who don't remember the civil rights era. I mean, I wasn't alive during the civil rights era, but I can honestly say that's something that really caught my attention of it. And first question I have is, without giving the whole book away, because everyone actually should read it, The Rhythm of Unity. I'll have the link on the website and everything. Can you tell me how he actually got the gig with Dizzy? Oh, well, it was actually, I mean, I guess it would, I would say it was serendipitous in that um, Mike always admired Dizzy and listened to his music ever since he was a teenager. And he, um, Mike, in his early career, he was, Mike was born in 1937. So he came to, uh, New York, and he was listening to Dizzy ever since, you know, he was a kid. And so he uh, came to New York, I guess it was about 1960, and um, he had, uh, he was invited to play at the Metropole, which was a club um, in what was the area where uh, all the jazz clubs were around 52nd Street at that time. And he had a job as the house pianist, one of the house pianists. And he played behind everybody. And, um, I mean, the, some of, some of the real greats of that time. And he learned from them. Um, and he was playing, I think it was a, a regular jazz room. And Dizzy was playing upstairs in what was called the modern jazz room at that time. And Dizzy was playing bebop. And so he must have caught Dizzy's attention because, um, and Mike was so intimidated by Dizzy, he didn't dare not uh, say hello or anything. But he uh, would go up to that room and, and listen and, and listen to Dizzy when Mike wasn't playing. And because he was in love with Bebop and that's what he wanted to play. And so once um, he was, uh, Dizzy passed, passed. Uh, by where Mike was playing uh, in order to go outside to take a break. And once he went over to a bar across the street and Dizzy was there and he came up to Mike and he said, you got something against Bebop? And Mike was like, wow. You know, and then he read in some kind of um, uh, magazine that Dizzy had, you know, Dizzy had been asked, what what young pianists coming up are you are you noticing? And he mentioned Mike, and Mike was like floored. And so it was. Um, Do you know the was, magazine off the top of your head? I certainly don't. Okay. I'm sorry, okay. I don't have a clue. Um, so uh, Mike was um, Mike, as I said, was intimidated by Dizzy, so he never said hello. And so uh, a friend of Dizzy's came up to Mike and said, "Hey." Dizzy wants to know what's the deal. You don't, you don't even acknowledge his presence and whatever. And Mike said, I'm just, you know, I mean, what do I say? I'm just so intimidated. I don't know what to say to him. And, and so the friend told Dizzy. And so Dizzy came back to where Mike was playing and he, Dizzy was in the audience and Mike looked out and Dizzy actually mouthed the words, I love you. 
And so my, <laughs> right. And then he came up to Mike afterwards and said, um, meet, me down at, meet me down at the union tomorrow at two o'clock. So of course Mike was there very punctually and Dizzy came up uh, in uh, I think a limo and he came out and he's Dizzy said, you know, when I get back from Europe, I'm going to need a piano player. And uh, Mike said he was just like, it, everything inside of him was screaming, you got one. But he didn't say that. He said, okay, I would love to take the gig. You know, mm-hmm. he, he pretended to be cool about it. So that's how he started. But when he first started with Dizzy, Mike really couldn't come up with uh, the chops. And he also was taking uh, James Moody, who was with Dizzy at that time, playing in Dizzy's, it was his quintet, took Mike under his wing. And uh, Mike, the first night, he blew it uh, out of the out of the park because he was so so um, excited to yeah. be on that band. This was in December of 1966, and then the next night he fell flat on his face, and Mike was so sure he was going to get fired. And um, Moody later told him the reason he didn't get fired was because Dizzy saw that he was improving and that he was very serious. But um, this is a story that's not in the book, Leander, that you might be interested to know is that Moody and Mike became like brothers. And um, Moody, Moody had a little lisp and he would uh, he would he called him Mickle. And so because uh, Moody's daughter couldn't say Michael. So Moody always called Mike Mickle. And uh, when Mike would not play when he would not come up with the energy on a certain night, Mike would get so depressed. And he would say, Moods, I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I going to do? And what was it? What was wrong? And Moody, and Moody would just look at him and say, I'm sorry, Mickle. You just wasn't swinging. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, a few things that are minor things in the book that caught my attention. First of all, I love the fact how he even you even started with the quote. Do you want to be a musician or do you want to be a star? Yeah. Did he actually live by that? Or was that just something he would just say every now and then? Um, no, he lived by that because he had a lot of opportunities, especially after he left Dizzy. Uh, and even when he left Dizzy, he continued. they continued until uh, Dizzy passed away in 1993. So, but he, Mike had a lot of opportunities to go to California get into uh, movie business and into show business and to be on The Tonight Show and uh, to accompany um, to accompany singers like Tony Bennett and, uh, and even Ella Fitzgerald. And Mike was very, in his own head, he never discriminated. He was, he appreciated that every musician has their own path to lead. And he was very clear what his was. And his was to just pursue the music. He was, in a way, fanatical about just understanding the inner workings of the rhythmic principles that Dizzy and Charlie Parker espoused. And so he gave up, uh, really gave up fame and fortune. And the interesting thing is that when we got married, I didn't know Mike until 1981, which is when we met. And... And we got married in the 80s. And I 
I am a classical, an amateur classical musician myself, but I understand the mind and the inner processes of being a musician. And I always admired him for that dedication. That was really one of the reasons why I fell in love with him. I wanted, I have never been in this life for the money. And uh, of course, acknowledging. I mean, that's something I'm going to ask you next now, because it's like, I rarely get, I don't think I actually ever got, nor had one other artist married to a jazz artist. So you're married, you were married to a jazz artist. Yeah. How is that experience? The guy is never around. He's always on the road. The gigs are here, there, up and down. Well, I mean, it suited us perfectly. First of all, we were married later in life in that I was 40 when we were married and Mike was 51. And so, and we had both been married before. So, uh, and we were so, so afraid to get married. I mean, it was just ridiculous how, I mean, we loved each other very much, but we just didn't know if we could get married. And the way we, our, our life situation was very unique. And I wouldn't recommend it because it's not for, it's not the, the routine. You mean, would it uh, recommend getting married or would it recommend? I wouldn't recommend living the way we lived. Because oh, okay. It, <laughs> We just wouldn't see other people. And the way we lived was we didn't live together. He had an apartment on 101st Street and Riverside Drive in New York. And I had an apartment right around the corner on 100th Street between Riverside Drive and West End Avenue. And we didn't live together for the first 19 years. Uh, and it suited us both because I was working during the day. And I would come home, I'd make dinner, he'd come over, and we'd have dinner and stuff, spend an evening together, and then he would leave, go over to spend the whole night practicing or going to a gig or doing whatever, and um, and I would go to bed because I had to get up at five in the morning to go to work, you know? So I couldn't have him practicing and, and you know, making noise and all of that stuff and having guys over to, you know, whatever. And I, I, I just... So it it was very a unique situation that worked just for us, I would say. And um, the other thing that I was I was going to mention was that um, because we were we had a very strong faith. Mike and I were both members of the Baha'i faith, and uh, we very much. Uh, we, we investigated each other's character for years. So by the time we married, I knew who he was and he knew who I was. And a lot of people might say this sounds naive, but it's the truth. I knew him. He knew me. I was never worried about him seeking out another woman or whatever. I mean, I it's just who he was and who we were. We need Our marriage was our home, so to speak. Okay. I mean... That's unique. I will never be able to talk a girl that I'm talking to to live in a separate apartment as me. So I admit that is unique. I like it. <laughs> well, you know, musicians who got who got the wind of how we were living, they used to get me aside and say, Dot, do you think I could get my girlfriend to do this? And I would say, whatever you think it is, it's not. <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like I said, that is amazing. So even though you weren't really married at that time, nor did, were you together, did he ever talk to you about this, the civil rights movement part, like the gigs before and after? Um, yeah. 
um, he would, uh, during the civil rights movement, uh, he went to, with Dizzy in 60, uh, 66. So yeah, before the civil rights movement, he had, uh, some terrible experiences with racism. Um, and by that, I mean, he was an advocate for interracial groups. And so when he was in New York in from 60 to 66, before he went with Diz, he would have groups, he would have, uh, his groups would have, uh, there's one instance, he would have a bass player and a drummer, and they were both black. And everybody hated them. The whites hated him because they thought he shouldn't have a black uh, rhythm section. And the whites, the, the whites and the, the blacks didn't like him because they thought, who is this white guy taking a gig from a black guy, you know? So that, and so, but, but he would always stick to his guns and he actually lost gigs. And he was happy to, I mean, he wasn't happy, but I mean, he was like, this is who, this is what, this is my group. And you can all do what you want to do with it. You know, for, in Mike's mind, the music stood by itself. You either wanted the music or you didn't. And this is the music you presented. And you don't have to worry about whether they're black, white, whatever, you know? So, yeah. And, but then during the civil rights era, um, he experienced the same. I mean, they had a lot of um, situations where Mike would try to get hotel rooms or motel rooms for the band. And sometimes they would get kicked out. And Dizzy wanted Mike to stay in a white motel and have the rest of the guys stay in a black motel. But Mike would refuse to do that because it was a band of brothers kind of thing. And he wanted to stay with his friends, of course. So Mike would stay in the uh, black motel. And he would uh, often, I mean, he would have to stay inside being protected by his bandmates. There was one situation where he was in... Um, a black motel for 10 days and they were playing and he couldn't go out of his room because there were race riots outside. And he went outside once with Moody and they saw somebody get stabbed and Moody brought him right back in. And the, the, the uh, band had, and his friends had to bring him food to the room and he could, was escorted to and from the stage by armed, armed guards. So that was during the civil rights movement. Then Afterwards, uh, fortunately, things did loosen up. I mean, clearly, there's still so much, so much hate and, and terrible things going on out there even today. But in those days, it was, I guess it was, it was, to it permeated absolutely every level of society and the music business. Okay, well... <laughs> So, I assume you personally got to meet Dizzy Gillespie. Oh, yes. Can you tell me a story you're willing or willing to tell me a story that won't get you in trouble or something cool? Well, I will first start by saying that um, I was never comfortable around Dizzy. And that was because um, I really didn't spend a lot of time with him. He was either working or Mike was over to his place. And so Dizzy didn't come to our part or Mike's apartment to hang out. He was there at times, 
But most of the time, Mike went over to New Jersey to Dizzy's, where they would hang out in Dizzy's basement. So I never got to feel close to Dizzy in the same way that I got to feel very close to James Moody. I mean, Moody and I were just buds. You know what I mean? So I'll tell you a story about Moody later. Mm -hmm. But with regard to Dizzy, the one thing I will say, and I can't show you because we're not on video, but when I first met Dizzy, Mike brought me to a rehearsal. And this was, of course, in the very early days. We had Mike and I had just started getting to know each other. And, of course, you have an environment where guys have, uh, excuse the expression, but what they would say in those days, they would have chicks hanging around all the time. Mm-hmm. And, sorry. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm sorry, but, I mean, that's what that's how they termed it. And so, uh, so Mike walked in with me. And Dizzy looked at me, and he wasn't he wasn't rude, but I'm telling you, he started at the top of my head. He went his eyes went down to my feet, and then went back up to the top of my head again, and then he just sort of shrugged, like, "Okay." And I thought, you know, I actually respected that because I knew he really cared for Mike, and he knew that Mike had been through hell with two, uh, two very difficult marriages. And he didn't know me from a hole in the ground. And so I thought, you know what, Dizzy, you and I are not going to have any problem because we both love Mike Longo and we both love Baha'u'llah, the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. And so you and I are going to be fine. So that's the only story I can think of to tell about Dizzy. Okay. But I would like to tell you a story about Moody, if that's okay. Yes, please do. Well, one was, uh, there's two. One was, Moody was a character, and oh, he was a joy. He was just, he was the most loving, warm individual. And he would would talk to, once I called him, because I was very depressed in the early days about my musical development, because I couldn't, I wasn't at the level anybody I was hanging out with, you know, and Moody was just, he just listened and he was so understanding and he just made me feel so worthy as a human being and whatever I was as a musician. But um, once he called me on my birthday on the phone and played happy birthday to me. And I'm telling you, a part of me was like, that's cool, Moody. Thank you. But another part of me was like, James Moody called me on the phone <laughs> and played happy birthday. It was like this, this two, you know, you played on I, the sax or the flute. Yeah. On the sax. Okay. On the sax. And another time on my birthday, um, before uh, my birthday, Mike was, Moody was, it. we were hanging out with Moody and Mike said, what do you, I don't know what to get you for your birthday. And I said, well, I'd like a watch. And Mike said, you already have a watch. And Moody was listening to all this. I said, Mike, you don't understand. A watch is not just for keeping time. A watch is, it's jewelry. It's an ornament. It's, you know, a watch. And Mike was like cl- clearly not getting it at all. You already got a watch. What do you need a watch for? So around comes my birthday. Moody went to the corner and got and bought 20 watches from this guy on the corner, probably $10 a piece. And he, Moody gave me 20 watches for my birthday. And within two weeks, they all died. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> and I just, I loved it. I just love those watches. I don't care if they worked or not. <laughs> they were That was Moody. He got me. Okay. Uh, did you ever get to meet Paul West? Oh, Paul and I are still buds. Paul calls me up. Oh, okay. Paul calls me up just to scream at me to say, hey, lady, how you doing? <laughs> how you doing? Basically, you still alive? I'm like, yeah, Paul, you still alive? Paul is playing at the Blue Note on, um, I think it's August 7th and uh, in New York City. And it's a Sunday brunch kind of thing. So I'm going to go in and hear him. Yeah, I adore Paul. He is he and Mike, um, they had a very, uh, it was very musical relationship. They didn't get into, uh, they didn't get into other things. I mean, their relationship was all about the music, but it was very, very close, you know? They adored each other, yeah. I mean, that's a literally a walking piece of jazz history. So this is <laughs> funny that he just calls you up and says, are you alive? Yeah, yeah, exactly, <laughs> right, yeah. And in fact, Mike used to call him Uncle Paulum, you know, uh, because once uh, they were, um, I don't know where they were, but uh, Mike was being, uh, feeling threatened and, and by uh, all the hostility and the racial division during, because Paul played on the group for, for a while. And Paul said, listen, if anybody gives you any trouble, you just tell them that I'm your uncle. And I'll tell that you're my nephew. I'm your uncle, and they can talk to me. I'm your uncle Paulum. So Mike called Paul Uncle Paulum once, uh, or all the time. And so once I called Paul, and I said Uncle Paul, and he goes, and he called me by his niece's name. He said, "Oh, I thought you were my niece." <laughs> I said, "No, you are. I called you what Mike called you, Uncle Paul." Mm. Okay, ma'am. Well, could you tell the people? where to find your book, all that stuff, where to contact you. The book is called The Rhythm of Unity, A Jazz Musician's Lifelong Journey Beyond Black and White. And it is available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And so you can either just go there and type in uh, Mike Longo, The Rhythm of Unity, or you could go to our website, which is MikeLongoJazz.com. And if you go there, there will be a page with some more information about the book, and uh, it will lead you directly to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and where the book can be purchased. And I'd also like to just mention that I'm currently working on an audio book. Um, I hope that it will be out by the end of the summer. And so uh, I have a very good friend and ex-student and very accomplished musician and pianist by the name of Frank Ponzio, who is reading Mike's part, and I am reading uh, my part. And the reason there are two voices is because I don't think I mentioned this to you before, even though you're aware of it, Leander, and that is that um, Mike passed away before he finished his memoirs. And he got up to 1981 or 82, which is when we met. So the um, Mike's biography consists of his actual memoirs. And then it's followed by my section called Reflections of a Jazz Wife about our life together after after that, when we were together. Okay. Well, ma'am, I think the whole thing's sweet. I love the journey and everything. 
everyone, you should try to check out the book. I think it's worth to read. And ma'am, once again, thank you for coming on. Leander, I want to thank you. And I want to, I really particularly want to, I'm so pleased that someone of your generation is very interested in jazz and in the future of jazz. Because in 1976, in 1972, Dizzy gave an interview and they asked him, what did he think the future of jazz was? And he said, oh, it's going to be this great new music and it's going to be, you know, all over the world and it's going to blossom. And frankly, Leander, that has not happened. And I think it's because a lot of what Dizzy and Charlie Parker brought to the music in the form of the rhythmic principles uh, has not been in has not been digested by a lot of really great musicians. There's a lot of great music out there, but I think much of it is missing that element. And so that's one of my reasons for putting out this book. And again, that's why I'm so thrilled that people of your generation are latching on to jazz. So all I can say is keep swinging. Well, thank you, ma'am. And I'm not going on a rant on that. (laughs) (laughs) Anyone that listens to the podcast knows I could be, I could go on that for like 30 minutes straight. (laughs) (laughs) Well, everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good day. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.